Hello everyone, and welcome to another edition of Learn From Gaming Podcast. Thank you for joining us as we dig into some of our favorite games and discuss what we can learn from them and just why we like them. Uh, for those of you out there counting, this is episode 28, not 29. Long story, but I confused myself. And we're coming at you on August 16th, 2018. So my name is Jay Stromberg, and I'm joined by... <gasps> Stu Gritter. The gasping Stu Gritter. Stu, mm-hmm. how are you today? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm uh, I'm doing okay. Doing okay. Uh, there's a part of our country that is consistently oh. on fire. Yeah, a couple um, parts. You know that. Yeah, a couple parts. Uh, I mean, it also happens in the states. Uh, California lights up. Oh, actually, just the whole that whole eastern or pff, Jesus Christ. Yeah, the whole western part uh, <laughs> lights yeah. up every now and again. Um, I have some some coworkers uh, that that I um, conference call with on a regular basis, and every now and again they're just like, yeah next door is on fire <laughs> so so yeah i uh, hope fun. everybody's safe uh, it's not always great to laugh about but um yeah scary uh that said uh we're here to talk about the things that we love and that we learn from so for anybody new who's just uh stopping by to try and figure out what the heck this podcast is about well it's uh it's sort of a labor of love that Stu and I do where we, uh, each of us, uh, try to focus on video games or board games or tabletop games that we like and explain why we like them, but also what we've learned from them. And that's not just, uh, not just academic pursuits. Um, so I mean, like you might take away spelling, you might take away, uh, you might take away geography. (laughs) We talk about that a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, but we also want to talk about like the, the social impact. So, um, a a good example was uh, a few episodes ago, we talked about, um, our first experiences on the internet with video games. Uh, a a couple of episodes, I dropped a bomb on Stu and we talked about, um, uh, video game rooms in hospitals, uh, <laughs> so children's hospitals to be children's more hospitals. Precise. Yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it the, the show kind of goes in different directions, but, uh, the intent is just what we learned from our hobbies. Um, so yeah, Stu, before we get right into it, uh, did you have anything you wanted to talk about off the top? Uh, nothing comes to mind. Okay, um, so then I think what we're going to do is we're going to jump into the next section, which is what we learned this month. Uh, best to call it a month rather than a week, because that's about how long it takes us to do episodes yeah. these days. Um, so this is the segment of the show where we discuss the things we learned about gaming this month. So Stu and I love tech, and we love gaming news. So remember, if you have any news or tech updates you want to hear us discuss, feel free to share them at learnfromgamingpodcast at gmail.com. So that's learnfromgamingpodcast at gmail.com. Um, also, just before we get a little too far into it, I can't stress enough the importance of understanding what the date is when we record this, because sometimes um, people th- send in emails and then uh, they do have sort of a long wait before they hear their emails read. Please, still feel free to send stuff in. So again, right now is August 16th, um, but the last episode that we put up, I believe it was episode 24. Which would have been um, like beginning of August. Uh, no. no. Well, no, that's when we put it up, but yeah. that was recorded back in either late April or early May. Yeah. Um, so try to keep that in mind. That's uh, 
yeah, that's about a two to three month wait. Uh, but that said, don't don't let it scare you away. We will read your stuff. Trust us. You send us anything. I've I've already sworn. I've already used swear words. Somebody just sent me a bunch of swear words. Thank you, Robert Ring. So, um, <laughs> yeah, feel free uh, to send us whatever you want, and we'll read it because we like to hear from you, and uh, that's part of the fun. So. Let's see. Uh, Stu, you said you didn't have any uh, news articles this week. Has that changed? Yes, I'm a dirty, filthy liar. I don't actually have articles, but there are two things that came up uh, that are kind of affecting or could affect the gaming community. Uh, One of them is the Nintendo is starting to chase down ROMs. That is a big deal. Uh, it has been in the news a lot. I have yeah. opinions on it, so let's talk. Well, you see, Nintendo has been starting to chase down sites that host ROMs. Which is kind of a new <laughs> thing. I mean... Yeah, it's um, never really happened much before. I, yeah, I mean, Nintendo, more than many of the other companies, uh, is ha- and has always been very good at defending its IPs. Yeah. And with good reason, Nintendo, more than most other companies, um, re-releases its content. Uh, I mean, you're starting to see Sony and Microsoft follow suit. Uh, I would argue that right now, uh, Microsoft with the Xbox One X has some of the best backwards compatibility in terms of consoles uh, you're going to get out there um, Mm -hmm. right now. Uh, Sega doesn't seem to really care at all, and Nintendo is just starting to fumble into uh bringing retro games onto the switch but yeah. you're gonna have to pay for them um which is fine also nintendo has uh i think it was last month um was the first company to beat out playstation for console sales and guess what system it was that uh the beat out playstation 4 for sales Stu, just try to guess i i i can't i can't that's fair uh, it was the NES Classic. The NES Classic sold more than the PlayStation 4 in the month of June. Hmm. Okay. Um, so that's sort of weird. But uh, just to sort of keep in mind, the NES Classic is uh, a curated release. It's an HDMI system that you, ju- you just uh, like plug and play. Uh, it comes with one controller... 30 of, I would argue, 30 of the best uh, Nintendo games that you could get the license for in uh, 2018. And it's incredibly easy to, uh, let's just put it politely, it's incredibly easy to manipulate and get basically the rest of the the Nintendo library on there. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, that it's a neat little system. I've got one myself. Um, and I... Yeah, it's it's good. It's good. It's uh it, it's interesting. Um but yes. Uh they're going <laughs> after ROM sites. What do you, what do you think about it? Like what are your what's your opinion? I uh, I I don't know. It, it's tough. I mean, over the past few years we've seen more and more of companies reaching back and re-releasing old stuff. But right. I don't know. The I'm kind of torn on it. On the one hand, if you know people have lost CDs or that kind of thing, and then they go and grab a ROM of it so they can relive something that they played a long time ago, there's a nostalgia effect there, and blah 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 blah. 
making them accessible is good and you know everything about the marketing and the research shows that when it's accessible people will pay for it but at the same time how many times should you need to purchase a game um, uh, okay so y y here here's my thought on that one um there are some games that I've purchased four or five times. I think Final Fantasy 2 slash 4, so officially Final Fantasy 4 is a good example. Um, I mean, I bought it, well, my family bought it initially on the Super Nintendo. Uh, then we bought it on the PlayStation. Then I bought it on the uh, uh, Game Boy Advance. And then I eventually bought it on PC. Um, and... I'll probably end up buying it again on whatever my preferred platform to play on is in, say, 10 to 20 years. Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking, and let's be honest, if I live, if I live a little longer than 10 to 20 years, um, I'll probably buy it again. <laughs> so I'm going to say, Stu, the correct answer is six. You should never buy a game more than six times no, no if more, you don't no have to. Um, yeah, well, I'm going to say more than six times. But, okay. uh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set six as my limit. Um, but, but that said, uh, not everybody's probably going to feel that way. I, I just I do it to support backwards compatibility and um, people attempting to because there are certain iterations uh, and here's here's what's interesting is if you're they're not just bringing the ROM back which um, is sort of novel and kind of a, a, a nice thing to see but sometimes you just want a game to get a facelift and that's what we're seeing a lot of on systems like the PlayStation yeah uh, the PlayStation 4 and the the Xbox One, right? You see a lot of the uh, HD remasters. Yeah. Or a good example is Shadow of the Colossus. The complete, it was basically a complete remake for the game, even though the controls are basically the same. Um, I would say every single art asset was basically replaced. Yeah. Um, and we might actually continue to see that moving forward. Um, and it's nothing new. I mean, Nintendo did it. Way back in the day with Super Nintendo when they re-released uh, Super Mario All-Stars, every single one of their original games for yep. the NES were, were uh, rendered in 16-bit graphics and released, and, yep. and the sound was upgraded. So, um, hmm. I mean, okay, I came across an article from uh, Chris Kohler. For, uh, he wrote it for Kotaku, and I'll make sure to, to link it in the notes. And it argues that for the purpose of game preservation, there are some ROMs that you don't want to see disappear off the internet. Yes. And uh, I think a good example, one of the best examples, and it's not everybody likes to, to keep waving this flag, but I've played Little Samson. I like Little Samson. Um, it was made by a company that doesn't exist anymore and by a man who is very hard to find if he's even still around. Uh, so the guy who originally did a lot of the work for Mega Man and um he eventually just disappeared off the scene uh i have no idea how you would even approach buying the rights for that game yeah and and actually the article that that i'm discussing is uh it it deals mostly with co copyright law and how absurd it's become um <laughs> just because Thanks, the, the nature 
Well, yeah, <laughs> actually, you're right. Um, but like Disney and uh, I, well, I would say uh, like movie companies basically pioneered it. Um, but but it goes on to discuss how. Um, so they invented these copyright laws uh, with the intent of protecting um, the intellectual properties of things like uh, early early film. And then they never really went back and thought about it. And and the issue is like we're hitting the the death of some of those copyright um, copyrights now. But the films that they applied to, some of them have like withered, disappeared into ash, or just like don't work anymore. Yeah. Um, There's actual medium that just can't it couldn't physically up. stay there. Yeah. Yeah, like for video games, it's one of the first times where the entire medium could theoretically exist digitally. Um, like it was designed to. And you can store it that way. I mean, there's still going to be the Frank Cifaldi's of the world that want all the, the Ethereum. Um, so like the, the extra tangible stuff, like the, the crazy shit that these games got packed with. Yeah. Um, but... At the end of the day, if you still have the functioning ROM of the game, at least you've got something. And I'm not I'm not saying that everybody should go out and download every single game, download entire sets of games. I mean, I, I talk a lot about this with uh, Fred Rojas from Gaming History 101 as well. Um, like that, that's not the answer, especially if people are actually re-releasing their games or re-releasing the actual ROMs of their games, yeah. uh, which is what Nintendo has been doing. Sega starting to do it. Um, but there are some games that if we don't keep these ROMs around and if the people who have been, uh, actually actively doing this for so long, don't keep it up, the stuff could disappear. And then like, it's just gone. Like nobody's gonna be able to bring it back. Nobody's really tracking it, mm -hmm. right? Uh, like if if the digital version of some games disappear, and I think it's, I mean, there, there's a bit of a longer lifespan for anything that's on a cartridge, but like there there are CD games that if people aren't super like, careful ripping them now, yeah, they're dying. They may not make it. Um, because, uh, old, like old press CDs, the, the originals, um, they were still very well designed, but a lot of them are starting to degrade now. Um, and eventually there'll be a cartridge rot too. Like eventually cartridge games will start to go as well, but, um, cause nothing, nothing lasts forever except for the digital copy. Cause you can just continue to make copies of it. Right. Um, but even that could go <laughs> right. Doomsday, yeah. doomsday preppers would say, uh, an EMP. In all of the right places could definitely uh, <laughs> solve that, but that's like this is all the worst case scenario shit that we're we're going into. So I'm thinking there there is a good there's a good use for it, um, but also like if if anybody's actively pursuing to release it in a form that makes it easier for you to use on contemporary hardware. And they're charging you a little bit for it, and they are actually the original copyright holders mm -hmm. if you want to play it pay for it right um and there are people in place actively trying to secure roms for for safekeeping for historical reasons yeah. so yeah, yeah it's like i don't know if there's a right or wrong answer for this 
Um, and it's it's sort of the the resolution that a lot of people sort of fall on. Like there's a dirty side to it, but there's also like a really important preservationist side to it. Yep. Um, well, it's yeah, it's it's, it, it's a tough one, and it's interesting how it's kind of similar to this discussion about online only games or like multiplayer games where the servers shut down that kind of thing yeah yes it's kind of like uh, that is arguably a medium where not some of those games are probably not going to make it well some of them are like i don't know how you can secure them some of them are going to be gone already for sure even even if people have the client side software there are doubtless some of those games that were multiplayer that you had to play online where the server the server software just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Which is uh, kind of weird, but it yeah. is a little bit weird um and it is like a super bummer for for some people. I mean, uh here's something weird to think about. We talk about this game like I'd say every two or three episodes, but uh, Thresh Wars, probably never going to see that game again. Mm-mm. Never, like not in a playable form, not unless the nope. creators actually listen to the, this podcast and are like, oh, there's a historical significance to this. But it's like a historical significance to what, 10,000 people? However many people actually got touched by that game. So um, still, like, we'll probably never see that game again in our lifetime. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and so many of those other like server-based or browser-based games that are just gonna disappear. Uh, Newgrounds is a good example. Like, think of all those weird games those we played games. growing up. Yeah, those flash games. Uh, some of them got popular. Like the best ones got popular and became like actual computer games. Uh, but the rest of them, I would argue, some of them maybe deserve <laughs> to disappear into uh, nothing. But. Uh, but yeah, for anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, there was an entire generation of games that existed solely browser-based uh, through uh, uh, programming through Flash, and um, you had to just you, you would go and play at at Newgrounds.com, and that's that's it was just like an arcade on your computer. It was, but it was just games you would you would never even imagine, or just really off the wall, sometimes ultra violent, goofy. Um, yeah, and a lot of those will just disappear uh, as well, I expect. Huh. Yep. <laughs> okay. Cool, 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 cool. So here we are, 2018, uh, watching video games die. Um, <laughs> what a great start. Uh, okay, so I wish that I had an upbeat article to talk about, um, but... Uh, my article is kind of weird, and it's off of Motherboard, so off of Vice. Mm-hmm. And it's um, it's about how two researchers were working. Uh, basically, they'd been hired to study uh, to confirm that violent video games uh, cause you to be violent. Yeah. And during their research, they could not produce conclusive evidence that would support that violent video games cause everyone to be violent. In fact, they could only really sort of identify um, very specific subgroups in which uh, that was the case. And again, those like, like the, you need to make sure that there are significant enough numbers. uh, So like you you need to make sure that the, uh, the testing pool is, is large enough. 
Um, and so uh, I'm gonna put this this article in in our show notes for everybody else to read. It's been a while since I've read it, if I can be honest. Um, but the, the the main idea is these two people assigned to research something that was being paid for by a private company when the results came back and they weren't what they were looking for. And by they, I mean the people financing the project, um, the researchers took the hit for it. So basically they got thrown under the bus by the, uh, the people funding the project. Um, and it's because they were doing good science and they didn't want to give incorrect data and inconclusive data so you know they did what a good scientist ought to do which was stick to your morals instead of taking the money and um they they didn't produce the data that the uh the private company was looking for and they took the hit for it so what's interesting is there was actually a media outlet that was interested in their story and was able to report it Mm -hmm. so thank you vice for that but uh if you're if you're interested in that story go right ahead and uh just check out our show notes. I'll make sure that it's in there. So it's the motherboard uh, vice story. And it's just about uh, two researchers that stuck to their guns and could not, could not support the argument that uh, violent video games actually cause more violence. Um, Which I think actually, so it's sort of like good stick to your guns way to go, but also sorry, you definitely lost your jobs. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but I think, uh, yeah, ha- having scruples is a good thing in general. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. yeah. I-, I mean, there's one more story we can talk about if you want to, and it- it's really just sort of like the English major uh, <laughs> writing as a profession. Lay it on me. Itch. Okay. Um, so IGN, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce the guy's name, uh, but maybe I should just take the time to get this information right before we start talking about it uh here we go um okay so yeah uh, okay so it's mute uh Mewson. uh okay, okay so um writer at ign former writer he's recently been fired um his name was, uh, I think, Philip uh, Musian. I don't know how to say his name. Um, anyways, there's tons of articles on him right now. If you were to Google um, IGN plagiarism uh, 2018, you'll get everything oh, you need. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, So this <laughs> is a... Uh, he was primarily a Nintendo writer at IGN. Uh, salaried full-time. Um and uh there was a youtube video that came out basically asking if an ign editor is plagiarizing me how do i prove it <laughs> so, and it was it was uh an individual on youtube was basically identifying an uh, an article that uh that philip Miusin had had written and was just like I'm pretty sure he's using my stuff or like rewording it and using my ideas um and a couple of a couple of journalists in other outlets took notice started and a couple of watchdogs 
started doing the research and sure enough yeah uh this guy had plagiarized that gentleman's work and it became a big a big to do and Musian actually took the time to defend himself on Twitter and say, I dare you to prove that I've plagiarized any more, even if I did plagiarize this, which I didn't, blah, 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 blah. And, um, yeah, people took the time, and he has plagiarized a, a ton. lot. Yeah. A lot. And it, All the way up to people like Jeremy Parrish. Like, he, he's pulled from everywhere. Um, and, and it's it's kind of sad. <laughs> It it is sad, but it's also not uncommon. It it's yeah. it is appalling. If you like, even five years ago, even when when game writing online was relatively new and picking up steam, when gaming suddenly, you know, got pulled into online culture and and popular culture, like right out of the gates, there were swarms of people like furious about you know there are these 10 different articles nine of them are the fucking same and just nobody cared not much ever happened well yeah it's i, I mean i'm not um, i'm not gonna say i 100 agree with you i i feel like there's a shift um in in the culture of re-representing um what somebody else has said but like you and I, and I would say that uh, sort of the older vanguard that actually was professionally trained or like went through the education system, um, like I can't tell you how hard you got hit with a plagiarism stick if you got caught in school, like in university in particular. Yeah. Like you could, you would have to fight to stay in a program in because no prof <laughs> would ever yeah. give you the benefit of the doubt if they thought you were plagiarizing. Yeah. And when we were coming through, there was a lot of technologies that were in place. I think turnitin.com was a good example. Like you had to submit your essay to turnitin.com um, to check against plagiarism against every other piece of academic literature that was out there. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I, I've, I mean, I've talked to a few people. I've talked to Fred Rojas about this. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm not sure if that culture still exists. And I'm not sure if everybody who's getting hired into Games Press had to go through it. Or if you even have to well, <laughs> have. It, it's just harder to, to, it's harder to validate everything, too. I mean, is it because of the volume? I, I mean, yeah. I guess it must be because of the volume, right? Yeah. Like, think about how many people are just doing this. For, like, we're doing this for free right now, right? Um, we are we're giving our opinions for free. the The difference is no one's transcribing it. There will be no uh, no like text based fingerprint unless I take the time to go back and do it later in life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> have fun with that. we'll we'll see yeah we'll see there's a lot more material to go through um yeah and it's i don't know i i think it's it's just weird because it doesn't seem like it would be that difficult to do that job and not plagiarize you know yeah i mean there are many there are many many uh video game writers who don't yeah, <laughs> right? turns out there are tons there are tons it's not hard to come up with uh, an original opinion um i think maybe yeah, he's when I was just talking, really boring 
the fuck? That, I mean, that's possible. Uh, the the most interesting approach that I've heard to this. Um, I mean, I used to do video game. I used to do video game reviews myself for uh, for our school paper. I didn't do a lot of them, but I did do them. And there is something that happens where if you read a review for a game first before you review it like you've already It'll you've already tainted yourself yeah right you've already tainted yourself there is the real real possibility that you're going to end up um either shifting or uh, even incidentally re reiterating what somebody else is saying like the best thing you can do if you want to review a game and uh, fred rojas also said this is just Keep away from everybody else's reviews. Don't look at anything, anything if you can avoid it. And just give your opinion. Fuck being objective because nobody cares about being objective anymore. Just give your opinion on the game. It's yours. It's original. And then it's done. Right? Like, no matter how hard you try to be objective, especially about video games and, like, uh, contemporary culture media, like... It's never going to be pure objectivity because we're flawed and we're human, and it, right? Too, like it's we, too artistic. There's yeah. too much that is open it's subjective. for interpretation. Yeah, yeah, it's it's subjective. So like, just do whatever comes to mind. Do it from the heart. Be critical. Like definitely be critical. But like, um, don't approach other people's work on the same topic before you've given your own opinion. Or before you've at least formulated your own opinion, <laughs> definitely don't go read the read their opinions and then go back to yours, because uh, that could be yeah, that, that could be real I mean, messy. I mean, that's that process is part of critical discourse, yes, but not part of providing well, a personal no, like one, review. Yeah, once something. your opinion's out there, look, once your opinion's out there, sure, go read somebody else's article, respond to it, but respond to it and quote them, right? Or like reference them, make sure that there's a link. Uh, we're in 2018. You can do that. It's not hard. Um, yeah. Uh. <laughs> so, so yeah. Contemporary games media. Um, I'm not saying like if if you are younger and getting into it, like just try to be ethical. Um, if you can, if you care. If you don't, like, why? I'm not 100 percent sure why you're listening to this this podcast. <laughs> Like, because the evidence points to video games making people violent, Chase. That's oh, yeah, that's how it is, mm, and money will prevail. Mm, yeah, I, I mean, at the end of the day, just try to be good, right? <laughs> just try to be good and stay true to yourself. And even though this all sounds like fucking cliches, like you gotta have some kind of morals, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> how else are you getting by? Um, and if if games media, like if games press, if reviewing games is something that you want to do. Like, do it honestly. Just start doing it, yeah. Yeah. Like, do it honestly. Uh, work at it. Maybe try and... Uh, because, trust me, if you're in it and you're doing it and somebody steals from you, you better believe you're going to be pissed. Yep. Because you worked hard on it, right? So, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, man. <laughs> Get your heads out of your asses, plagiarizers. Come on. <laughs> you also don't have to be a games journalist in order to work on having ethical behavior well just no to clarify 
Yeah, no, like, as a person, <laughs> maybe just try to be a good person. I mean, sometimes uh, I fail at it. Sometimes I'm a horrible it's, person. It's hard. It's a lot of work. But, Man, yeah, a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, Stu, let's let's get out of this section, because we're supposed to be talking about stuff that we like one last and why we like news, it. Because I had two things. Oh, ha- you got another one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, go so ahead. So, just going to breeze over... Um, news has been coming out, I think, just over the last couple of days that Valve is actually working on getting Windows games to run on Linux. That. Which would be really, really interesting. You know, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, that's that's actually a pretty nice initiative. There, and there's, like, I haven't read up on it enough. I, I don't know. I couldn't speculate to the reasoning behind it. Is it, like, an untapped game market that they think they can make sales? Is, is Microsoft somehow shitting on steam which wouldn't surprise me because it's microsoft um i don't know i I don't know but but it's a thing that's in the works so if i mean it could be a little inside baseball but if i had to guess uh microsoft is probably pushing to make any um natively windows based game They'll, like they'll make their own through app their store that. through their Microsoft store. Yeah. Like they're they're trying to become the That'll new Steam. Um, now what what bugs me about that is anybody who natively uses Linux. So anybody who they turn on their machine and it loads up as Linux usually has enough understanding and ability to just produce an application that will open games through windows right it's it's like a windows box in linux yeah mo- most i mean gamers who use linux primarily uh often still have a windows emulator it's yeah it's, so yeah <laughs> hey full circle windows yeah. emulator yeah. <laughs> yeah ironically enough yeah. sometimes works better than just running windows yeah i uh sometimes yeah sometimes um cool interesting yeah um, yeah i'm i'm sure that'll come up at some point in the future yeah okay um great well i think we're gonna shift away from yeah. from uh from news then uh and move into the meat of the show which is what we learned from gaming so now it's the part of the show that most of you have been waiting for <laughs> this is the section of the show where each of us pick a game uh that we've played and we describe why we like it and what we learn from it so Stu, do you want to go first or second i love giving you the choice um hold on i've got a thing to flip you get to go first i get to go first yep. cool okay so Stu, are you ready are you ready for um, today because oh, yeah. we didn't share notes do you have any idea what I'm going to do today? No, I told you what I was probably going to do. But you were like, I'm too cool to tell Stu what I'm going to do. <laughs> That's because I wasn't sure what I was going to do <laughs> until like yesterday. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So the game that I want to talk about today is uh, Bolt Action. And specifically, oh. I want to talk about Bolt Action version 2. So for anybody who's not sure, I'm going to sort of dive into the, the specifics of uh, what Bolt Action is. So Bolt Action was designed by Alessio... Sa- uh, Savatore and Rick Priestley um, 
and it was published by Warlord Games. So uh, version 2 was released in 2016. I think the first version was released in 2011-2013. And genre type, it's a tabletop war game specifically focusing on uh, representing World War II and actually just uh, the conflicts and confrontations building up to that. So it's a small scale game. I mean, you can can collect and build up to however many points you want but uh, realistically it's uh, designed to represent a single platoon in a fight um, using a a points based system so you you buy units um, from an army list you equip them with weapons from that army list and uh, it's at a certain points value and it it's to basically represent a single platoon sometimes it'll have a little bit of uh, armor support um and that is uh that's what this game is about so the core mechanics of this game um so it's a tabletop game so you're gonna have lots of dice you're gonna have some counters you're gonna have some templates um but to get down to the messy of it um what bolt action does a little bit different than other war games it's a turn it's a turn-based game don't get me wrong there are actually player turns in this in this game but those turns are dictated by order dice so what order dice are are they they're a six-sided die um that represents a unit within your platoon so for every single unit in your platoon including transports Um, and uh, armored vehicles and scout vehicles each one of those gets an order die once you've created your once you've created your platoon you take your order dice and you put them in a bag and your opponent does the same thing they put it all into the same bag you shake the bag up and then each turn round so there's an entire round so each turn round or yeah each turn round um you pull a dice from the bag so you just um, you'll pull a dice from the bag, whoever's dice it is, uh, that's your turn, and you get to activate one of your units on the board with that dice. And there are six actions that you can choose from, and you decide which action you want to take. You put the dice in front of the unit, and then you execute whatever the orders are based on the rules in the book. And the rules, it's about uh, 30 to 60 pages of rules, so I'm not going to go too deep into that, um, unless, Stu, you have questions about it, but... Um, what I like about this system is it's a little more unpredictable and it's not just one player takes all of their units, activates all of them, and that's their turn. It's a li- it's a lot more back and forth, but with sort of some random number generator variability in that the number of dice that are in the bag, um, they get drawn at random right you're not looking in the bag when you put your hand in to pull it out so um it's a really really interesting mechanic and it's one that i feel because i i've played games where uh it's like one unit activates so one of your units activate one of your opponent's units activate one of your units activate one of your opponent's units activate um and i think what they were going for with bolt action was sort of the chaos of war and i feel like that gets really well represented in the way that you can pull order dice from the bag 
Um, there's also like some interesting features in the game. Like if you have commanding officers, you can say you pull. So say uh, one of my orders gets pulled out of the bag and I'm just like, okay, I have a commanding officer that hasn't gone yet. Um, I'm going to use his order to activate his special ability, which is snap two. And he can tell any unit that's within six to 12 inches of him, depending on how powerful he is. Um, like whether he's a captain major or whatever, um, he can tell any other units to, uh, I think it's like up to two or three units to activate as well. So that actually reflects the command ability of, of a unit and sort of gives anything that's near them an edge because they're actually following orders. Um, and I feel like it does a pretty good job of trying to simulate as much as toy soldiers can, um, sort of the, the messy command structure that occurs in war um but also sort of trying to represent that like with with the right units um it can still be pretty efficient and can work the way that you want it to huh <sighs> okay um so uh, like just to give people an idea i feel like i'm not explaining this very well so um Tabletop Wargaming, we've talked about it before, there was a really good episode that we did on, um, well I'm saying it was good, nobody's told <laughs> us it was bad, so on Privateer Press's uh, War Machine and Hordes, yeah. um, but the thing to know about a tabletop war game is you need to collect the models, you need to put them together, you need to paint them, and then they need to be played on a tabletop with terrain. Um, bolt action more so than most other games that I've played is a very terrain heavy game, yeah. uh, depending on where you're playing. Like you could be playing in like the fields of Russia, <laughs> you know, yeah. or on, on like beaches in Normandy. And some of the, the modeling game that people have brought out, like I have seen incredible shit done for this game for, for terrain, um, but this is one of those games very similar to uh, Corvus Belle's Infinity, um, which is a, a sci-fi futuristic game where more terrain is better. You want a lot of terrain, and you want sort of a diversity of terrain. So um, say you want a pastoral setting, you would like to see like a big farmhouse, fences, hedgerows, uh, maybe a dirt road a forest, ponds, like you want to see that, like all of the more stuff you could put on the board, the better, because that makes for engaging, interesting play with, with your, uh, with your units and how everything engages with the train and stuff like that. Um, city fighting. I've done a lot of city fighting with this game. Um, both in version one and in version two, uh, because people like to put together basically wrecked, <laughs> like or or uh like towns that are in the middle of a fight because so much of the uh the war occurred over uh Europe although uh, like I'm not trying to neglect what happened with the island hopping uh with the, the Japanese sort of side of the war but um a lot of what has been represented in contemporary media with the exception of HBO specific uh and and a few movies um is really like the, the European struggle. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. So, I mean, core mechanics aside, 
there, there are some interesting pros and cons for this game, but what I want to actually jump into is what I learned from this game. Um, so maybe I'll try to circle back to the pros and cons because what I learned from this game is sort of weird. Um, there, one of our early episodes, we did a little conversation on, uh, World of Tanks and how World of Tanks got me all excited to, uh, to get into learning about World War II, uh, specifically because I was playing the, the, the Russian tanks at the time. So when I first started Bolt Action... Um, I was drawn directly to uh, playing a Russian force, um, mostly because I felt like it's one of the least understood armies in World War II. I mean, it's getting a lot more coverage now. Um, it, there's tons of information on it if if you want to look for it, um, and just the stuff that Russia actually accomplished in World War II is uh, staggering terrifying and often sad um the like the the death toll for russia uh was in the tens if not 20s of millions um like it's it's or higher i mean i i i i didn't write down numbers but like it's surprising the number of russians that died in in world war ii not to say that other other sides didn't also have casualties but um there there was a a particular price that Russia paid um, in order to come out still communist at the end of World War II. Um, But I ended up gravitating to another faction, and I ended up learning a heck of a lot about um, Hungary uh, and Uh. how, how the Hungarian... Well, how Hungary as a country was impacted by World War II, what what battles were fought there, um, how they engaged with uh, like Germany in World War II, because the the thing about bolt action is there needs to be a good guy and a bad guy, um, and the interpretations, whatever. Like at the end of the day, if you're Axis, you're kind of a bad guy. (laughs) There's really no getting around it. Uh, You're kind of a bad guy. so, uh, like, uh, the Hungarians, they joined the Axis because they, they bordered on Austria, um, and they were in very good relations with both Austria and Germany, and they had been on the losing side of World War One, and were kind of still licking their wounds mm-hmm. and re- recovering from it, and they had some national pride they wanted to sort of exercise. Um, they were not quite as crazy as, as the Germans were. And by the Germans, I mean, they, they didn't have the same sort of genocidal ulterior secret motive until the, the sort of fascist party started to pop up within Hungary. Um, generally those were motivated by, uh, SS cells. Um, and eventually there was a, an organization called the arrow cross, um, that was, I mean, it was basically Hungarian SS. Um, and then you really saw some horrible stuff start to happen, uh, to minority groups in, in Hungary. But, I chose not to focus on any of that. I I know that there are people who actually build um, Aerocross infantry platoons, and I'm just like, that's not something I'm interested in. Yeah. So what I ended up doing is I ended up studying just 
how Hungary as a country entered the war and I started gravitating towards um, just some of the some of the forces that they put into the field and one of the forces that they put into the field was the uh, the first Hussars which was a cavalry unit of all things um, but it was equipped with the best tanks transports reconnaissance vehicles and troops so veteran troops uh that hungary had hungary had to offer and the intent was initially they they were supposed to stay close to home and germany was like okay yeah cool cool they'll they'll stay close to home totally totally just make sure they're sort of like close to home near us and then they ended up getting pulled into operation uh and uh (laughs) <laughs> they were nowhere near Budapest when Russia finally hit it. Um, <laughs> they got they got pulled out and pulled in all kinds of different directions. And uh, eventually they ended up surrendering to the United States, of all people, um, just because they had nowhere else to go near the end of the war. So they just sort of kept following uh, the, the Germans around. Um, and it, I, I mean, these are there's so many stories like that. And I'm not even doing like th- this. Pl- I, yeah, or, time like, research. Uh, yeah, like I'm not even doing a service to to these guys, yeah. right? Like, um, but I chose to create an army that mirrored them. So same types of infantry, same types of weapons, uh, exact same armor, exact same uh, scout vehicles, and exact same transports. Um, and that's what I take into battle these days. Um, and uh yeah i learned an unusual amount about um military forces from many 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 years ago in a part of the world i've never been um (laughs) and it's all because of the love of the hobby um and i i took time to make sure that my army accurately represents them in terms of like color of uniform uh, they ride on horses because they're a cavalry unit. Um, everything is about uh, mobility and transportation and speed and movement. So, like, even the dudes who are on foot, ha- like, they're, they're in they're inside transport, so they move quickly. Um, and what's interesting is, like, choosing that army puts me at a disadvantage. But what you find in the community for bolt action as a whole is people want to play historically accurate, generally, they want to play historically accurate um, armies. Um, hmm. Rules be yeah, damned. I can see that, yeah. So it's actually sort of an interesting community. So um, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about bold action is I recently played in a tournament. So uh, last weekend I played in a tournament called Incoming uh, 2018, and we the tournament actually took place in uh, a Canadian armory. So uh, the Lincoln Welland Armory uh, in St. Catharines up in the, um, up in the mess hall and then also in the officer's mess. So it was uh, it's a pretty big event, mm-hmm. like 24 people. All of us had uh, pretty decent armies. Like they were all painted, looked great. Um, somebody took the time to put together like 12 boards to play on. Oh, yeah. Um, and you just sort of shuffled around and played different missions and, um, yeah, it was just, it was interesting. Like it, it was, uh, it was a really enjoyable time. Um, some things to note, it was definitely all dudes. (laughs) 
yeah. <laughs> Another thing to note, uh, just because of the demographic of the the city that we live in, uh, well, the city that I live in, uh, it was mostly white dudes. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but that also sort of comes with a hobby. So, I mean, I'm going to talk about some, uh, and that sort of brings me to some of the cons uh, for Bolt Action is it's an expensive game. Um, I mean, video gaming as a hobby is an expensive game, but uh, wargaming also uh, very expensive to get into um, because you have to buy the stuff. You have to paint the stuff or commission somebody to paint the stuff if, if you want it to be painted. Um, also, it, it's a time sink, so you have to put everything together. Um, mm-hmm. And you have to learn the rules, so you actually have to read a rule book, which is something that you don't have to do for most video games. Um, so in terms of learning how to play the game, you have to teach yourself and learn through through play. Um, but it really, really helps to come to the game with a basic understanding of the rules, so uh, reading it first, it, reading through the rulebook first, first is always encouraged. Um, I mean, in terms of pros, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, sorry. I I really do enjoy the order system. Uh, I think that uh, stands out a little bit. The, yeah, the order yeah. dice system, like. Um, Okay, so a good example of variability. Uh, I was playing somebody who had a 14 dice army, so 14 different things that they could activate. I had 15. Um, our first round, I was pulling the dice. I pulled seven of his dice before one of mine. So half of his stuff got to activate before I did anything, yeah. but because I was the active agent actually pulling the dice... Like I, I was, I could also like. There's also mechanics in the game, so I can respond to what he's doing. But, um, like I felt like I was in, involved in it. I got to watch it play out, and it was just the way that things swung. The next round, it was sort of a back and forth. Like I yeah. was pulling one of his, pulling two of mine, pulling one of his, pulling two of mine, pulling two of his, pulling three of mine. You know, like stuff like that. Yeah. Um. But. Uh, yeah. It. I, I mean. It's hard to critique that system, um, just because of the RNG nature of it. Yeah. It's 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 not bad um, by any stretch of the imagination. It, if anything, it's actually kind of good, and it it makes things a little more surprising. You can't just chess brain a game when it's something like do that, that because yeah. yeah, because you if you're chess braining, like good for you because you're thinking about <laughs> a lot more variables what? than mo- most people can. Yeah when you don't know if you're going to be able to activate something next. Um, it, it also, because you're only doing one or, t- like, in theory, one or two things at a time, uh, you're much less prone to rushing through your turn and then not paying attention. Yes, yes. So you, you, um, it's easier to maintain focus on that game. You're not spending 10 or 15 minutes watching your opponent do stuff. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, and what was interesting is because my last experience playing this game was in a timed tournament, um, I never ran out of time in that tournament. All of our games actually moved pretty smoothly, pretty swiftly. And I don't know if it was just because everybody knew what they had to do or knew what they wanted to do. Um, I did occasionally find myself just focusing, like not properly reacting to what was going on on other, other parts of the board because I was just waiting for a dice to come out because there was something that I wanted to activate. Yeah. Um, and a- 
so this is actually interesting. Um, and this is where the tactics come in. What I should have been doing is I should have been watching everything else that was activating and responding to it, but instead I was just, like, focused. It was like, okay, I want to activate this tank, right? I just, I want to activate this tank. Four order dice later, the opponent, like, the board has changed. Like, I should be doing something else to respond to everything else that has happened, but I'm like, well, no, I want to activate this tank so that Mm. I can activate it. It doesn't get hit, and it doesn't, there aren't any complications. Because another, another system that exists exists within this game is the pinning system so the pinning system is if you get shot at um so there are two roles in the game to to sort of remove something from the game so a roll to hit so if your opponent rolls a dice say they shoot at you so they shoot a gun at you they roll a dice on a four plus they hit so if they roll a four five or six they hit once a hit has been confirmed, you put a pin marker on your on whatever it is that got hit. And pin markers, you can have as many pin markers as you have, um, I think it's leadership. And leadership is, a, is an arbitrary value um, determined by uh, the level of experience of, of the, the unit. Um, I'm not going to go too deep into it. Let's just say that um, the regular numbers are 8 nine and ten um and so eight is lowest lowest value of experience of a unit and then ten is highest so tens are veterans eights are like green and experienced um if you get eight to ten pin markers your unit breaks and runs um but what happens when pin markers are put on your your uh, units and it's cumulative so uh one shot like say an entire unit shoots at me that will result in only one pin marker being put on my stuff as if i get hit by the shot but say four different units shoot at me three of which hit me that's three pin markers say i still have the one from the other unit that shot at me so that's four pin markers and you see they add up and what pin markers do is it's a it's a negative effect for each pin marker and again that is cumulative too so if i had four pin markers on that's negative four to anything i'm doing um with the exception of moving you still move full but if i want to shoot if i want to do anything i have to make a leadership test and it's a negative four to do that um so i could actually get scared um and when you fail a leadership test, what your guys do is they hit the ground. So that then your order dice, you have to choose to switch it to a down order. So they hit the ground. They're a lot harder to hit. You can't shoot at them as easily, but they're not doing anything that turn. Um, so, I mean, it, it, there's a bunch of systems in place that make, uh, make it a little more chaotic, but also kind of represent the, uh, the degradation of uh of command because when things start to get really nasty in in a firefight like there will be troops that won't listen to orders uh because they're too busy getting shot at um and if they poke their heads up they're gonna die or they think they're gonna die so like why would they um and it's it's just there's a bunch of neat systems that exist within this game that uh that i really really enjoy watching play out on the board 
And what it ends up doing is if you have a narrative brain or you have an imagination, once you've played the game, you can sit back and you can think about how sort of theatrical the entire event of that fight was yeah. and what was actually going on. And that is just such another valuable asset to this type of game and this type of play, especially when you've taken the time to make sure everything looks pretty. Um, and I've always really enjoyed that. So, yeah. I don't know if I'm doing this justice, but I've talked about it a lot. <laughs> so I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, Stu, do you have any questions? I guess I think um, I was trying to pin down... Uh, exactly what it is with tabletop games because they do deliver a different kind of experience than than video games and I think it is that that narrative that theatrical side to it uh, I don't know because the, uh, there are other you know there are plenty of strategically similar <laughs> things going on in there's, a bunch the, of games. Social there's the social like aspect I, to it I talk to people yeah. <laughs> right I actually I went out to lunch with someone I'd never met before. Um, so, like, that's good. <laughs> like, I'm usually in my basement with no one. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Is that, I, I guess, do you feel the, uh, the, the realism, the, the historic setting of the game actually helps that narrative side come out? Uh, you know, I feel like Alessio and uh, Rick Priestley really did take the time to think about what accurately represents in, in you know, I'm not saying, I'm thinking that they approached it and they were trying to be respectful, but they were also trying to make the game fun, right? Uh, because like World War II is nothing to shake a stick at, it's nothing to laugh at, Um it's it's a serious sort of uh, it's serious sort of content, but what they were able to accomplish is they were able to create a game that feels like it simulates so much of what might happen in a in a conflict in World War II, um, because you can get um, if you fail leadership roles, uh, which I mentioned sort of offhand a little earlier, like your unit can break and run. Um, there's also a role, um, say you roll two sixes on a leadership role. That's, that's a fail. It like, it, it would seem like a high number, like maybe a pass, but it's actually a fail. So that's known as a, as a FUBAR, which is an, an acronym for something I don't feel like saying, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's where things go really wrong, where your own troops could even fire on, on yourself, like fire on other, other units just, just cause they get so confused and they're not really sure what's going on. And all of that represents, I feel, almost accurately the chaotic nature of um, World War II combat, where communication lines weren't always stable, things did break down. I mean, th this even happens in contemporary war today. Like, y you wish that it wouldn't, but um, people hit the wrong targets, right? You, and, I mean, you can take stuff like mortars, uh, you can take uh, artillery, air, artillery and air observers, and calling in airstrikes can go wrong. Uh, you can hit your own people. You, calling in artillery strikes can 100% go wrong uh, because it's just, it's going to hit, and it's going to hit within a radius, but 
because of dice rolls, there's always the possibility that that sh- those shells might stray in the wrong direction um, and start dinging your own guys as well. Like it's, it's um. And and the pinning the pinning factor, like the the more stress you put on a unit, the more likely it is that it's gonna stay down, it's not gonna act, and it's gonna break. And the lower the experience of the unit, so if it's an experience, if these are guys that are just like fresh off the farm, just got a got a rifle thrown in their hands, um, statistically speaking, based on the system that has been created, they're gonna be the first to run, and they're probably not gonna listen to orders once they get shot at. Like it's it's really interesting how it plays out on the board when you see it, um, and 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 it it generally does play out really well, and the way that you you would think. Um, sometimes things de- defy logic in terms of uh, mathematically what should be happening. Uh, you'll have weird situations where um, I played one game where my medic, who was all by itself, uh, ran into a fight and like actually assaulted somebody in close combat and killed three veteran Germans just killed them <laughs> like pretty sure a medic would never do that <laughs> also it's a war crime to hurt a medic um but uh yeah that happened and it was weird it was weird like it was an experienced medic and it was just the way that the dice dice rolled um yeah uh but I think for the most part, it does a good job. And I like it. I enjoy it. And I'm not sure if there's much else to say. Did you have any other questions? Well, I... I I, I don't know. Maybe I didn't quite ask that clearly. I don't know if that got answered. Um, because that those narratives, they come out in other tabletop games as well like we have there are umpteen stories about the warmer hordes that we played and crazy shit that happened in terms of you know narratively in those situations do do you think that that the i guess the more realistic grounding of bolt action helps bring that narrative thing out oh 100 percent i mean there's uh there's just so much his history that you can reach into. Um, like uh, a good example was the event that we were playing incoming, uh, 2018. Um, it was the, the Normandy landing. Um, so it was, it was like the offensive to try and land mainland on Europe. So it was the allies versus the access beach, beach sort of landing, like just fighting for, for to create a salient and then push on into Europe to try and stop the Germans. Um, I mean, the fact that I was playing Hungarian was sort of arbitrary at the end of the day, it was just Axis versus allies. Um, but like that sort of anchored the story for a number of people and made the fight really, um, more relatable because I mean it's a story that everybody knows. Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, just comes like, to life a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Anybody who's interested in World War II, you get sort of an image of what it should be. In the same way that say, Incoming 2019, maybe it's uh, 
maybe it is island hopping maybe it's sort of pacific s so like all the fights are going to be in a jungle um you you get the idea of either like um <laughs> i was going to say like uh, unfortunately most of the fighting was uh was just like japanese versus whoever so japanese versus russia yeah. japanese versus uh the us japanese versus um uh, the UK or uh, Australians or whoever it was that happened to be posted wherever. Um, but, um, I mean, again, those are conflicts that are a little less known. Um, also, like, the the, Af- uh, the the African War, right? So, like, Italy, Germany, US, UK, even France, uh, just, like, duking it out in the desert, right? Not a lot of people know especially like people our age know the specifics of of all of those fights um but what's interesting is if you get pulled into it you want to learn more and at an event like incoming 2018 you can just talk to someone and they'll tell you all about it yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. like um so yeah uh and i mean when i when i played my russians um my my russian army because i do have an actually pretty pretty big russian army um i would play against our friend charlie and we would we would often just pretend well i think i played against charlie once um (laughs) but like when we played it was like okay are we playing in stalingrad yeah let's just play in stalingrad right and there's a lot of imagery and a lot of narrative that just comes right out like enemy at the gates you name a Russian war movie, most of it happens in Stalingrad. Occasionally, they'll focus on Leningrad. Um, but, like, that's where some of the major, major conflicts occurred. So, like, you just, you, you end up there. Or or Kursk, which is, like, the, the big yeah. armor battle in, like, in the fields. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a lot easier. Like, it, it functions as an anchor, it, and it takes your mind there. That's if right. you've got images in your mind, it'll take you there. Yeah. And the miniatures will do the rest. That makes sense. Who? Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I don't know if there's much else I can say about it. Um, I don't know if I did it service, but, uh, yeah, bolt action. Um, hell of a game. Don't know if it's for everybody. Probably not. Um steep entry point yeah but uh yeah if if you just want to get an idea there's tons of uh just go on youtube look up bolt action battle report and you will get lots and lots of uh videos yeah. uh beast of war guys do a good job of uh, bolt action uh battle reports so i would say uh take a look at them the production value is some of the best that you're going to find online but there's lots of other smaller groups that do it and they do a good job of it too so and if there is a friendly local gaming store near you, if uh, people ever do play those kinds of games, the communities usually are uh, relatively friendly. You can just kind of find out when people are playing a game you're interested in and go check it out. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. Uh, the the bolt action community I found as a whole, um, you know, there's there's always one or two people that are a little rough around the edges, um, a lot more welcoming. Um, a yeah. lot more interested in just like talking about the lore around the game. Yeah, the history is going to draw a lot of people to it. It's not just going to be, you know, fucking orcs rah! or that kind of thing. Yeah, and like a lot less concerned about winning the game yeah. 
and more just about playing and having fun. It's it's actually kind of refreshing because the competitive nature, like I went to a tournament, the competitive nature, I didn't really feel it. It was still friendly. Um, yeah. Like nobody was there breaking the system, right? <laughs> People were just there playing what they wanted to play. Yeah. Nice. Um. Yeah. Okay. There you go. That's what I got. So what are you doing today, Stu? Yeah. I'm going to be doing a game that has a much, much cheaper entry. Uh, because oh, that's good. <laughs> it is free to play. Uh, I'm going to talk about Vindictus today. Oh, nice. <clears throat> yeah. So Vindictus, I don't know when we played it. I guess it it came out late 2010 in North America. Um, Late 2010, you say? Yeah. Uh, released then. I can't. Yeah, we we were playing it like when it was bright and shiny new, and then I kept playing it a little bit longer than you, I think. But you may have gone back to it. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Uh, and then it kind of um, yeah, yeah. It was it was weird. It it's grown a lot since then. I was um, gonna say, does it still exist? Oh yes, 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 yes. In a very okay, very big way. I, um, I'm gonna mute my mic and look it up. Yeah, it's, it's. I'm muting my mic and I'm gonna look it up right it's now. It's very real. Yep. Um, boo, boo, boo. So, when it released, okay, I guess I should. Um, yeah, I'm just gonna go through some of the mechanics. It's kind of it's it's an MMO, but it plays kind of like a brawler. There's kind of a town where you can run around and uh, sort of upgrade your character. Um, and then you go and you do missions, and the missions themselves are instances. So you go into a mission either alone or normally, I think, up to three people. I think uh, when we were playing them, there was one raid that was available. So I think 10 or 20 people could go in there. But um, you kind of spawn into a level and kind of rush through it. Uh, it was a 3D, 3D environment. You beat up a bunch of baddies, and there would be one or two bosses at some point. And it, it played kind of like a like a fighter, like a brawler. So there were, when we played, I think two or three different classes available. Now, depending on the region, there are roughly ten characters to choose from. So the characters are locked into specific weapons or weapon types. So there there's a dude who uses like a big-ass hammer or somebody who uses always two short blades or somebody, I don't know if they had a bow or something, I don't remember, or a staff, a stick. Big beady stick. I don't remember. So you pick your character, and then you just kind of go, and you level up and get resources from from doing all of those those instances and get stronger gear, better gear. The MMO style of, of RPG leveling up. Uh, I don't remember what the max level was then. I'm sure it's different now. Uh, but it was... I don't know. It was, it was interesting, and the the combat played very, very well. The combat was interesting because each character was drastically different. Like when we got in and there weren't a ton of characters to choose from, they they did all play very differently. So you could, I don't know, if you had a group of four people that were all the same class, you would approach fights a little bit differently than if you had one or two people of a different class. Uh, they just, you know, they bring something different to the table. It, it's kind of like, another MMO where you have fighter or your kind of tank DPS healer but a little bit less rigid in in the roles. Everybody is kind of there to just do damage and it's on you to survive 
basically. Uh, again, I don't know if that's changed with the introduction of so many more classes. but uh, And the boss fights in particular were very interesting because they had specific weak points or specific bonuses that you could try to get, and none of it was apparent. You, you had to learn the bosses uh, much like you would uh, like in a Dark Souls fight or that kind of thing where they have tells that you're going to have to learn. Uh, they hit really, really hard. If you get hit a few times, you're probably down. They'll have, you know, at different ranges, they'll have different behaviors. The AI might switch up and, and you know, start focusing on somebody for a specific reason. And you could maybe try and figure out ways to gain that. Um, different weak points, like very specific. Uh, one of the ones I remember, sorry, we played this such a long time ago, was one of the bosses had a, a fancy a, a tin hat and you, one of the items you could bring with you was a bow and arrow and if you knock the tin hat off of his head so well this crazy giant half giant kobold dude is like flailing around with whatever weapons he's using if you manage to pin this tin hat off of his head that becomes an item that you can pick up so the first bunch of times yeah. that you're playing you have no idea that this is a thing. You're just trying not to get crushed by, by a beastie. <laughs> and then yeah. whether you play, you know, in an open pub and somebody else does it or it just happens by accident and, you know, the camera zooms in and, and shows, oh, should somebody just shot his hat off. Can, can we do that again? How, what does this mean? And then you, you go and pick up the hat. Everybody gets a hat out of it because one hat turns into four. That's how it works. Shut up. And then you can start running that inst that that instance again and see what like is that something you can repeat? Is it not? So the the brawler style of it was very very interesting. It was kind of beat 'em uppy. It was relatively simple. I think it was a, a fairly easy game when we were going through it. Yeah. Uh, it was still relatively early in development when we played it. Like it wasn't it was it wasn't yeah. anywhere as near the size it is now. Um, it's published by Nexon to give, you know, like, they're, they're, it's not a small company. They have a ton of stuff out there. Um, I, I don't know. How, I don't know how much they have in North America, to be fair. But. Um, uh, n yeah, Nexon, um, they are a huge, huge player in uh, Korea. Well, in Korea, but in the mobile market, they produce large amounts of mobile games. Um, okay. But uh, I I would not like their. This was one of the first PC games of theirs I ever played. Okay, and I mean, yeah, kudos. It was it was a lot of fun to play. Um, yeah. Yeah, that that yeah. that brawler style was was really really interesting it was relatively new and fairly fairly high quality when we were playing it as well like it, it's it wasn't like trashy slapped together garbage it no was, it was actually it was pretty well yeah, developed. it was actually the, yeah the i as i recall what really helped us effectively bounce off the game was the um the stamina bars and the I think it was the pay to quest yeah there was a little bit of pay to play 
it, I don't know if that is still in place. Uh, from the skimming that I've done, it looks like their cash shop is now mostly uh, cosmetic stuff. There's a little bit yeah. of ability alteration. I don't know if any of it's power-based, but, but when we were playing it initially, there were you could only do so many instances per day or something like that. There was there yep. was a, a, yep. a limit to how much you could actually play. Yep. Um, but I believe the raid, there was a polar bear raid or something like that, which I think didn't take up that 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 time you could do that as many times as you wanted or something I, I don't know I remember a lot of people doing that um no even the polar bear raid took was stamina or whatever whatever it yeah. was what stopped us was we got to a level where the only way that you could continue was grinding a polar bear fight <laughs> um no was paying the next levels because remember we got to about the the top of where the free stuff was and the only way we could move on is either escalate the level of dif difficulty with what we had we had okay or pay to get into the next level because they and that was like really really early really really early yeah. release stuff um, and I expect the game has expanded vastly since then, and those type of practices have probably eased up. Yeah, judging by, I know we I introduced this game to a couple other people too, and one of them played it a lot for a couple of years anyway, and he definitely didn't throw a dime at this game, which is good. Uh, so that's good. To hear. <laughs> so uh, I don't think that a ton. I, I don't know. If stuff was content locked, I don't think it was for a super long time. Yeah, well, I, th um, I know. I just, I, I feel like we played this game hard for like a month and then stopped. And, the, and they, yeah, they were, again, it was so and early. And then we didn't really go back. And, yeah, never really yeah. reinvestigated it. We were so early that all the characters weren't released. Yeah, when, when we got in, there were, I think, only two or three characters. There was one more that released while we were, like, close to the end of when we were playing. Uh, and we uh, didn't want to re-grind our, our and characters didn't, didn't because go through we, or yeah. just didn't have the interest. I think we tried them out and stuff didn't really, I don't know, didn't click. The play styles of the characters were so drastically different that you, you just, you're not going to like them all, I don't think. Yeah. I mean, some, peop some yeah. people might. It's entirely possible to like all of those characters. That's... Entirely um, possible. So, Stu, um, you know what this game reminds me of? What? Monster Hunter. Kind of, kind of literally. The bosses at the end, but they're the bosses. Yeah, are literally like they they feel like Monster Hunter bosses. Yep. Like the way that I remember fighting them, especially the way that stuff breaks off because it's the exact same thing for Monster Hunter. Yeah. Um like you're you're working to try and break off parts of a uh, parts of a creature. Um I think that the gimmicks and how to get the stuff off are actually a little easier to execute in Vindictus. Um because it's very specific things that need to occur in order for those parts to get detached yeah. um whereas in monster hunter it's just like whack the shit out of it until it falls yeah, off yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um 
but uh, yeah, that polar bear fight. Oh man, I remember. Holy smokes, like raid style polar bear fight, just like people, people launching stabs. So many, yeah, their spears. Sorry, like, so many things. And it's it's just and, like trying to pin it down. It just became became a thing. It it was hysterical after having gone in and fighting this polar bear alone it it like it's an enormous it's a it's not like oh it's a polar bear no it's it's a giant polar bear and yep. it, it was just an incredibly difficult fight to do with one two or three uh three people but you hop into a raid and it turns out 30 people throwing spears into your eyeball is really really painful and it kind of trivialized <laughs> the entire experience but uh, yeah. I don't know that that was kind of the big, the big thing. Um, but but I guess the experience up to that point uh, really stood out to me. I haven't seen anything mm. r- quite recreate that. And maybe that is something <laughs> that that like Monster you Hunter. You need to would play Monster Hunter World. <laughs> you need to play Monster Hunter World because it's there. That, it's that, pretty close. That, yeah, anyway. the the boss fight stuff is there, but I guess the 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 brawler style of it, of of getting to that point, like you're not. I I almost want to say it's uh. There's almost something vermintidey about it. Mm, yeah, I think like my my biggest problem is I haven't played that game. I haven't played uh, Vermintide okay. yet. I, I'm betting it's very similar to uh, Left 4 Dead, yeah. only with gear. But worse, right? Yeah. Oh snap! <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, number two, they I reportedly fixed a lot of the the things that people didn't like about the first one, but I I never gave the second one a shot. Mm. But um, yeah, just co- like having a co-op thing, jumping into a level with a bunch of buddies and just kicking the shit out of a bunch of gnolls in a very not like not explicit but visceral I don't know the the combat felt really good in it mm-hmm. uh, and so just running through with different groups seeing what people got used to people's strengths and weaknesses all that jazz doing different boss fights with different combinations there was a lot of um, a lot of potential for a high skill threshold I guess yeah wasn't always needed if you had 30 people with pylums but uh, yeah it was it was it was really interesting for that I'm just I'm just installing this game again. I just want <laughs> <laughs> well, no, like I want to jump into it and see see how, how it feels now. How much has changed? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm like I've no doubt that it has changed a bunch, uh, mm-hmm. which is kind of weird. I think it's it's the only time we've uh, I've brought up a game that we had played that is still easily accessible but has changed a ton yeah but but um, it's that 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 experience up to that <laughs> point is kind of the the big thing yeah i was gonna say world of war tanks is uh that one changed like the introduce the introduction of physics um like actual 
dropping physics, the removing of the imaginary walls on every cliff and stuff, you could actually just fall off it now. Yeah. I thought that was just such a big change. And yeah. like, they just continue, even to this day, they continue to roll out vehicles for that game. Um, but this is a very different beast. A very, very different beast. I'm interested to see exactly how it's changed. Yeah. And if my character's still there. <laughs> and if I can remember the login. <laughs> yeah, all that might be a little different now, too. Um, so I, I guess it, it'll it be weird to... I can't really speak to its pros and cons in its current state. So that's... that's I have a sneezy cat. Um, so, so mm -hmm. that's kind of weird. Um... I know we, we did sink a bunch of time into it. It was enjoyable. It did, I don't know, present a new experience at the time. Um, I don't know what could have, I guess, just having more game available to us might have kept us interested a little bit longer. This was also a game that uh, I didn't play a lot solo. And... I don't know other other MMOE stuff. I probably would have. I'm not sure why this one I didn't. Yeah, but it was it was the rare occasion that I would jump into into Vindictus and 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 do an instance alone. I think it was because we were living together. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you played it with your friend uh, with Joel as well. Yeah. Yeah, and did you get anybody else in it? Um, yeah, yeah. There was another guy who played it for uh, a long time. Actually, Joel and I collectively got him into it. <laughs> like we played, I think, only once or twice with him, and then stopped playing Vindictus, and then he played it for many years. Oh wow, Which that's is, that's funny. Yeah. But I mean, good. You know, it's especially like free to play and to never throw any money at it, but to play it for that yeah. long. That's, uh, that's neat. That's that's a good find, I would say. Yep. So I don't feel bad about that. Good. Um, good. 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 Okay. Yeah, in terms of <laughs> I, I yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say about it in terms of standout experience. Um, it was just a little bit of. I think if we played it more. And we progressed mm -hmm. further. I think mm -hmm. th we would have seen a lot more um, dynamic team fight pros and cons, people getting better or worse at stuff. Um, and just, like, yeah, honing, honing a team in that Monster Hunter collaborative kind of way. Yeah. I, I think that'd probably be one of the biggest, one of the biggest takeaways. Well, what was interesting, um, and I remember this because I went back and created another character, was I don't know why they released the game without all of the initial characters. Um, because if you remember, like, the strong guy with the Tetsubo, like, the, the big staff, um, he could actually stop attacks. So when a good example is that knoll you were talking about, like he could block or catch the knoll's weapon and hold it in place or push it over. Um, he could catch the bear, the polar bear's attack, like the paw, 
and push him and like daze him and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there were drops that were a lot easier to get in those positions. Like like you could fire off uh, certain certain things. Um, and it felt like every time a new character got released, because the other character that got released while we were playing, so there was like the initial male and female character, then there was a magician female, oh, right. and like a, a super buff male. Yeah. Um, like e- every single one of them was just so dynamically different yeah. um, in terms of play style and combat, like even movements. Um, and even then, I think there were like sub subsets yeah. to each one like i remember the sorceress having like you could use a wand or, a or you could use right. a scythe yeah. um so it's i, I don't know like i kind of want to go back see what's going on uh look uh, take a look under the hood um and just sort of see how things are uh, something tells me it's maybe not the most approachable game for a beginner <laughs> Which is basically where I am again, yeah. but uh, yeah, you, you've got me a little bit excited, yeah. so I might spend a little bit of time with that mm. game, see what's nice. going on. Nice, nice. Yeah. Um, other other takeaways, I don't know. I guess, I guess this was almost a a throw into seeing a game and, and the potential that's there, more so than what we actually got out of it. Because grand scheme of things, we didn't really pour a ton of time into this game. Uh, but what it presented in the small amount that we did play was interesting. It was very engaging um, and had, yeah, I think had longer term potential to be something pretty engaging and, and a little bit more cognitive. Yeah. Especially playing with the crack squad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Trick is getting that squad together. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Um, was there anything else you wanted to say? Any sort of closing, closing remarks? Um, uh, to do. I guess one of the only other things. Um, sorry, just because you asked, you were surprised that they released it in such a uh, an early state. I think they initially only wanted five classes. Okay. So they released when they had three, or like as an early release, or I I don't know, I don't remember exactly what they did. But we started playing when they only had two, yeah. and I think just the success of the game, they just kept churning out more characters and more zones and everything. Like it just, it's it succeeded beyond their initial yeah. expectations, so they ran with it further, which is I, mm-hmm. I mean great. Uh, I'm sure people are probably still playing it um yeah might be worth yeah. might be worth a look I, if you like mmos if you like the leveling up rpg stuff if you like brawlers if you like monster hunter i don't know give it a check it's definitely interesting yeah well i'm gonna check it out and i'll report back next episode uh, see, uh, see if it's just nostalgia goggles or if there's actually something there worth playing. I mean, it was originally released, what, 2011, 2010. Yeah. So. Oh, right. There yeah. was a little bit of crafting and a little bit of trading and that kind of stuff too. Yeah. yeah. You had to craft your own armor and stuff. Yeah. So if you didn't get the drops that you wanted or you couldn't, you'd have to go back and do it. Go back and, and yeah, either get them from the auction and house hope. or, yeah. 
Oh, there's an auction house. Yeah, there's an auction house. I there. forgot about yep. that. Yep, yep, yep. So there was stuff that I, yeah, we, um, I definitely remember making bank on a couple different, a okay, couple different cool. craftable things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Neat. Neat cool. and good and fun. Cool, cool, yeah, cool. I'm. I'd even be curious just to see how the the scope of the game has changed, but. Mm -hmm. Sometime. Sometime, sometime. <laughs> yeah. When we have yeah. more time. And the aesthetic was really good. Like I mentioned, the graphics weren't bad. The, ge the yeah, general the aesthetic appeal good was, for its yeah, time. was not bad. The writing was, uh, but that's to be expected. Yeah. It, it was anime-ish. Even though it was Korean, it was anime-ish. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Now I'm done for real. <laughs> cool. Um, okay, well, I don't think I have anything to ask. So I think what we're going to do is we'll just jump into um, what we learned from you. Um, so this section is our email section. And we got an email. And the email is from Greg. And Greg says, it's a short one, I swear. And then in brackets, I lie. Mm -hmm. um, so <clears throat> I guess I'll just I'll read through this and we'll see what we can see. Dude, do, do you want me to interject when I have something to say or do you want to read it all? Because um, it is a short Feel one. free to interject. Okay. Um, yeah. Or you know what? No, uh, interject if you want. Uh, not a big okay. deal. We'll, we'll just see where we go. <clears throat> Well, I'd ha okay, so this is me speaking as Greg, just just to be clear. Um, well, I'd have to say I could talk about this for hours. Not sure what this is. It's one of my all-time... Oh, okay. Now it's an I introductory it's statement. One of my all Come on. Yeah. It's one of my all-time favorite games, and not because of the majority of gameplay itself. It was puzzles and problems, and the fact that I played it alongside my friend. That's nice. Uh, the game was Might and Magic 3, an old-school dungeon crawler. Uh, general description is this. It doesn't count towards size. It's really hard to explain this game quickly because it's so large and involved. You have a team of four characters, each with classes and skills and attributes. You explore the world completing dungeons, getting better gear, gaining skills like mountaineering, which lets you travel on mountain tiles and other such things. Bows or swords, bows, spells of which there were pretty large lists. Some had unique spells, some were shared. Combat is turn-based. Monsters casting spells, shooting arrows or moving towards or moving towards you. That's mm, Okay. I'll re I'll reread that one. Combat is turn-based. Monsters casting spells, shooting arrows or moving towards you. I think max two units on a tile at a time, but ranged attacks could still come in at you from behind them. There were cities, dungeons, other random points of interest. The main game was exploring the world with ever-increasing requirements of skills, weapon strength, etc. Item drops were random in a tier sort of way, so you may not find the thing you you need right away. The game was full of puzzles with clues uh, scrawled on dungeon walls. Uh, with oh, whew, sorry, this is just a little awkward. With 
clues scrawled on dungeon walls to riddles told to you by NPCs. These puzzles were also not limited to dungeon or to the dungeon you were in. They were worldwide and spanned early to late game. Okay. I'm going to stop right there. Just to be clear, like the solutions to the puzzles weren't like in one city and then across the world late game the puzzle that the answer was for was there, right? Oh, yeah, they were. There there were puzzles that oh, span yeah, that where brutal. there would be multiple clues spread throughout different Ooh. dungeons. That's uh wow, yeah. wow, wow. That's the kind of thing you love when you have time. a lot of spare time but would aggravate the hell out of me now. Yeah. Um well, you might yeah. find a clue on level 1 dungeon you won't use until level 50. Oh, wow. I just had to keep reading. Okay. <laughs> okay. General idea uh, was arrive at a new area, find a city, clear the city. All cities were full of monsters at the start and had a dungeon in them. Then use its stores to heal, equipped by spells. Then move out from there to find dungeons in the region. So, with this description, the main point is the puzzles. The game would be impossible to complete without finding solutions to specific puzzles. And beyond that, there were a ton of other puzzles that could be completed in order to hoard, er, in order, no, to offer a hoard of treasure, gold, or useful services. Um, the social aspect was that I played it alongside my friend. When we were at each other's house, one of us would play, the other would watch. We would scroll down all the text on the walls, recording the, the things NPCs said, even mapped out all the dungeons. That's that's really mm -hmm. cool, actually. Cities, my friend ended up with a graph paper one on one scale, or one by one scale of the entire world. That is nuts. Uh, which was required for a specific quest to find a fountain of youth to stop our characters from dying of old age. Um, wow. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Uh, my last count was six full uh, cache? Yeah. Uh, notebooks full of riddles, working out solutions and maps. My friend was nine, I think, and, um, and the huge world map was taped together. With <laughs> it was just graph paper taped together. That's nuts. Where did, like, on the roof? Where did you tape <laughs> it? On a wall? Um, the joy we had of solving riddles together was entirely what makes this game the special thing I love so much. This was before the internet, and the solutions to simple riddles like what goes up and down but never moves were not solvable by a simple Google search or game walkthrough. That is something I truly feel sad about losing. The ability of a child to be able to play a game that they have to solve, not just go online to find a solution to. I think that, especially as kids, we're prone to just complete a game and feel accomplished, and don't really care about how we beat it. I often feel that's a large part of what makes a game fun. Hmm. Okay. Um, I, I kind of want to come back to that. Um, it'd be interesting to really try to brainstorm ways a puzzle, 
uh, a puzzle solving game could be created without the ability to just look up a solution. Dynamic puzzles revolving around in-game features? Question mark? I don't know. But I really miss that. I think Might and Magic 3 was something unique, and I've really never encountered anything that required the same effort since. I feel like... Mm, oh yeah, I don't know. There aren't enough uh, puzzles in um, Etrian Odyssey. It's really just uh, it's really just dungeon crawling and map making. Mm. At least my understanding of it. Um, hmm. It's it's kind of a. On the one hand, any game that does have puzzles, like even adventure games, it's. At this point, with the tech the way it is, the onus is on the player to not go and look up solutions you know uh yes now perhaps a good example is i i guess this is kind of interesting because i've uh i've been playing some puzzle games recently i i recently well a little while ago played through uh the room one and two uh and then jumped into oh shoot what's it called uh cypher and okay. Cypher is just a puzzle game. Like, there's a, a bunch of rooms that you walk into, but they're just, it's like a puzzle on the wall and a pedestal below it where you type in the answer. And if you want, you can type hint into the box, and it will give you a hint, uh, but there's only one for each puzzle, and you just kind of have to deal with that. And the same kind of thing was in, I think... I think the both the room games you could get up to three hints, and the third one made it super clear what you needed to do. Right. So, uh, there are examples of games that help push you in the right direction for puzzles, without, you know, n feeling like you need like if you get stumped. Back then, yeah, there was nothing. You you just had to figure out the answer to that riddle or piece together these um, obscure scripts from different dungeon walls. And that's that's very different to just looking up a solution to an adventure puzzle. I think that there are happy mediums in between where you can let people who want to struggle through it, let them do that, but also provide a little bit of a bump for the people who are frustrated with something and they, they just don't want to spend 10 minutes thinking about this one thing. At five minutes, they want to say, okay, help me in the right direction. I really can't think of anything. Yeah. I, you know, I'm I'm just stuck on this line. I think that especially as kids, we're prone to just complete a game and feel accomplished and don't really care how we beat it. Um, I often feel that's a large part of what makes a game fun. I'm going to be honest with you. If you're a child and you beat Might and Magic 3... You should feel accomplished. <laughs> um, I don't fair. care if yeah. you've got to walk through or not. You should probably feel accomplished. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think like that's kind of the crux of what Greg's trying to get at is the how you beat it. Um, because when we were growing up and even today, right, even today... Uh, there are some games where it's a linear path, right? Um, it's really just a question of how many different ways can you kill 
an enemy um, as you power your way through um, a curated narrative. But there are also other games that really sort of open things up. I guess my question would be, like, all the puzzles and stuff that uh, Greg and his friend had to endure, like, did they have to solve them all, or did they just choose to to get more loot? Some of them you had to solve to progress. Some of them were absolutely just, like, bonus things. Yeah, I... Hmm. I feel like... There's e there are even ways to say, okay, the easy puzzles would be the ones that are mandatory. The super hard puzzles would be the one that, you know, give you golden crowns and, and shiny dragon slaying swords of holy crap, it's big. Yeah. Um, I think with the existence of the internet and uh, just the way that things get put together... Um, like one way to avoid this is to play incredibly obscure games <laughs> like mm -hmm. uh the uh, but even then like what's so staggering what is so amazing and strange is um you have to be late or you have to be like on the very forefront of playing a game to not be able to get exposed to the spoilers in it. Um, I think the only time in the last few years that that's happened for me is when I was playing, I think it was either Pokemon Sun or, or Moon. So I think it was either 2006 or, two, or 2016 or 2000. Yeah, it was 2016. Um, I was playing games as people were still getting their walkthroughs up. Um, and what a lot of the larger companies were doing because it was a it was a larger JRPG, um, still not a huge one by any stretch of the imagination, but I guess they just hadn't allocated time to it because it was on the 3DS. Um, was uh, like as I was playing, people were putting up the the next set of walkthrough inf or pieces of walkthrough informations for uh, for locations in the game. Yeah. So I guess they were just a little bit behind on actually producing that that content. And it had been years since I had done that. Like usually when you buy a new game now, uh, there are people who already have walkthroughs up. Um and it was just because like the 3DS is slowly phasing out. Um, it was a new Pokemon game, but I guess it just didn't, uh, like, larger corporations just hadn't, hadn't set assets aside to do it mm -hmm. quickly before launch. Um, yeah, it was just, it was so interesting um, to actually go into a game like that and not know what was coming next. Um, I, I don't know if part of that is that there, there is a lot more early access now. A lot more review copies being passed around to like streamers to build hype. It's a lot easier to get a hold of a copy before you should be allowed. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, and uh, what's interesting is this is actually coming full circle. Uh, if you write good walkthroughs... Plagiarizing. Um, it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, plagiarizing, <laughs> yes, but... Um, if you can if you can write a good walkthrough, um, 
that is marketable talent for uh, James or games media, right? Uh, for big game sites because they're interested in that kind of talent, especially if it's not just a good walkthrough, but a good, well-written walkthrough that is intuitive and well-organized. Um, the only problem is with that, like, sometimes I really wonder how much money people in games press actually make. Uh, just because, like, you're doing stuff that other people are doing for free, but not as well. <laughs> yeah, it's weird, eh? The whole economy yeah. is strange. It's strange, but that's also the reason why um, paid media, number one, is not, like, it's, I'm not saying it's becoming rarer. It is becoming rarer, but also, like, there are, this is going to sound really weird, but there, there are organizations that aren't as willing to go to bat for their own employees anymore. Um, and it's just because they just they don't have the finances to do it. Like we're we're getting to the point where um, there's the, the money starting to dry up because people are performing a service that can also be done for free. But the problem is when you do it for free, uh, you don't have the same assets that are required to get. I mean, games journalism aside, regular journalism. Mm-hmm. If the money's not there for regular journalists to do their job. That means you don't get all of the answers. You don't get the whole story. Um, And that's where things can get really dangerous. Um, But that's not what we're talking about. (laughs) We're not talking about creating an objective uh, sphere of knowledge. Um, Or are we? Uh, Okay. So what do you... uh, Was there anything else in Greg's email that you wanted to pick apart? Um, I don't know. I, I, if people could come up with a decent way to do like dynamic puzzles, uh, something that you couldn't create a walkthrough for that, uh, like procedurally generated, yeah. that uh, might a thing that someday. could happen. Uh, yeah. It's just, I think it's called Diablo three. <laughs> Where, where's that monster I need to kill? Is it on this floor? I don't know, it's it's just so hard to guarantee a quality and and b the 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 player experience at that point. Um, I I don't know. There's there are definitely lessons to learn from Portal and Portal Two. Those are puzzle games that have f- genuinely foreign concepts that the game needed to teach players you know yes i I and i don't know maybe maybe there are walkthroughs for portal as well it it never really sounded like it (laughs) but uh i expect that like there will be lp um lps of it for sure and i don't know it's just it's a different flavor of, of puzzle solving too i guess yeah. Stu, I assure you, I assure you that for Portal there are walkthroughs that explain in almost painful exactly, detail yeah, how to get through every single puzzle. Things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know. I, I, I think I've kind of talked through what I can talk through uh, for that email. 
Uh, thank you very much, Greg. Um, if there was anything else you wanted to talk about, Stu, for that one, you're more than welcome to, but I think we can probably shift yep. away. Personal responsibility. Don't want to spoil it. Don't. There you go. <laughs> Puzzles are hard again. <laughs> thank you. There you go. Okay, so Stu, we're going to get into the next part of the uh, next part of the show, which is what we've been playing. So what have you been playing? Oh, well, I mentioned Cypher. I've been playing it a little bit. Yep. Um, okay. I also... Ooh, whoops. Uh, it's Yeah, it's just like cryptography and um, I don't know neat neat puzzly stuff um, which is interesting to me but not to a ton of people it's the same made by the same guy who made Hexels which is another favorite logic puzzly randomly generated puzzle game that I really enjoy uh, it's good okay for, cool yeah winding down at the end of the day uh, but I also actually over the last couple of days, I sunk like an hour into Terraria, and nice. an hour into Starbound. Uh, wow. Yeah. And, and okay. Wow. Going yeah, back. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious because I never really gave Starbound a full playthrough when it was released, or I don't know what had been updated since I'd played its it. Its gating was a little harsher than Terraria's. Yeah, that usually doesn't bother me. Um just the uh the the gate from place yeah. to place and it was harder to get used to the thought of leaving a planet just uh, for me i was so anchored Once you uh, to planet? the way that you play terraria uh. which is just like having having a home base on a planet yeah. whereas like what you have to keep in mind when you play uh starbound is planets are there's expendable. a few of them yeah um <laughs> And they the they really are just instances, and you can yep. leave them. You don't have to stick around. Yeah. Um, so that was that that took a little getting used to for yeah. me. Yeah. Um, That's fair. And like your ship, oh baby, your ship should be your main hub, right? Your ship should be where you do a lot of the. Uh, what or where you store Quest, questing, a lot of the really important and, stuff. Yeah. Because if you die, that's where you're going to respawn unless you've got a hardcore character. Um, Which I'm guessing you're probably doing. Uh, no, not anymore. Smart. Yeah. Smart. You've learned in your old I, age. I just don't have the time to redo that now. Um, I do remember at one point having like a farming planet. So that is still a thing that... You, you, like yeah, like you can point. like lock in a planet as this is a place of interest. I can come back here. Uh, bookmark them sort of thing. Yeah, uh, but yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I'm just bouncing into that just to kind of reacquaint with the series. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. Yeah. Let me know. Uh, let me know how you feel about those if you keep playing with them. And I'll let you know about Vindictus. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Anything else, oh, or was that that's it? it? Okay, so um, I've been playing Stellaris. Um, restarted again. Uh, this time, I want to see if I can genetically manipulate my uh, space foxes into the greatest race that ever was a space fox, um, because that's an option in the game. <laughs> so I'm going to give it a shot. Um, 
uh, also have been playing Octopath Traveler, just sort of a th throwback uh, JRPG retro sort of dealy, but um, mildly engaging combat. Uh, so like just different mechanics make the combat a little more enjoyable. Um, so it's not just pressing A to win. Uh, I've been playing a little bit of Hollow Knight, but not enough to talk about it intelligently. Played a decent amount of Dragon's Crown for PlayStation 4. Um, so Dragon Dragon's Crown Pro, the Pro Edition. Um, very pretty game. Uh, Hand-drawn, sort of brawler um, in high fantasy style. Uh, I'm just trying to think of anything that's exactly like it. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like if any kind of brawler met a JRPG or like a well it almost like a sort of Diablo-esque system um, for lack of a better term I mean there was that Capcom D&D game but like this one's a little bit yeah. better um, it's made by Atlas and it's and Vanillaware and it's uh, it's been really fun uh, very uh, big boob anime style um unnecessary <laughs> Almost. yeah uh i mean i don't have anything against big boobs but uh it's it's kind of funny um <laughs> like the the art the art design spe specifically on the sorceress uh or any of the magic using females yeah. in the game um is quite over the top but uh i still play the female spellcaster so whatever I, ha I have a good time i fly around the map on a on a broom <laughs> it's a good time um it's fun i don't know if there's much to learn there aside from how to beat stuff up but uh it's it's a it's got a nice pace to it and um it's it's just a beautiful game and for like a fantasy fan like myself it's a good time and i don't know if i have anything else really constructive to say there so think yeah unless you have any questions about stuff that i'm playing we can probably bring this to a close yeah give her yeah. okay cool um so Stu, thanks for hanging out with me for so long yeah. and uh <laughs> listeners thank you for taking the time yeah. to listen so hopefully everybody enjoyed this experience i had a pretty good time with it um Stu, did you have anything you wanted to plug this week before we shut it down Ooh. Nothing's coming to mind. No, I don't. I don't think so. Okay. Um, well, I'm gonna post a bunch of links to a bunch of articles in the yep. show notes. Um, definitely go take a look at uh, Kutaku's coverage of what's going on. Chris Kohler, kind of a big name in video game press. He's been around for a while. Uh, definitely look into some of his work. Um, I mentioned Fred Rojas more than once, so definitely pop into Gaming History 101, take a look there. I mentioned Robert Ring once, so if you feel like it, look at the Classic Gaming Podcast. Uh, just a couple of guys talking about games from back in the day. Um, and, uh, I think I want to throw a thanks out to Dimitri. Yeah, I do. Because <laughs> he's the guy who did our music. So thanks, Dimitri, for our music. Uh, thanks, Joe, for our art, and um, thanks, Greg, for the email. And otherwise, thank you, Stu, for taking the time to do this podcast with me. 
So if you want to know more about Learn From Gaming Podcast, too bad. Our website <laughs> fell apart. Um, but we do still have Facebook. We definitely have Twitter. And we also have Podbean. Yeah. Uh, so just look look up Learn From Gaming Podcast on any of those. We're also on iTunes. So whenever we release, uh, whenever we release a new episode, it goes directly into those feeds. Um, as well as uh, Google Sound. So um, yeah. Still trying to work on the the <laughs> the website. Yeah. It, uh, it it's sad, a mess. Yeah. Um, yeah, things are not good. Um, I've still got the domain, so worst case scenario, if I have to start from scratch, yeah. we can. Um, but uh, yeah, might have to drop the existing website and start start fresh. Um, anyways, check us out. Let us know what you think. Email us at. Uh, Oh God! Learn from gaming podcast at gmail dot com. That's learn from gaming podcast at gmail dot com. Um, yeah, if you you want to talk to us about anything, otherwise, um, thanks again for joining yeah. and tune back in soon. Cheerio.